Good morning. All right, if you would like a Bible, some gentlemen will run one to you, if only you make yourself known. And I said last week that we would, um, that I had to decide whether or not we're going to cover the last half of Gideon's life or Jephthah. And we're going to go with Gideon. So if you will turn with me to Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. We'll start in verse 4. Judges 8, 4. Hear the word of the Lord. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, please, Give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars." And from there, he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers, east of Nobah and Jogabah, Jogbeha, excuse me, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him all the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars and taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you were, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the son of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as a man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. 
the Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one, every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. They raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and, the Baal, and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them on every side from the hand of all their enemies. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, your people have gathered to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we long to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we pray that you would awaken our hearts to hear and to obey. Grant me the clarity and the power that I need so that I'm not up here as just a tinkling symbol making so much noise. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've been working through the book of Judges. And what we've been saying is that this book, as it is written, is intended to work on two levels in God's people. Number one, it is intended to be sort of an anti-exemplar narrative, showing us these really bad guys and warning us not to be like them lest our lives go down in a spiral. The second way it's supposed to work in us is to make us look at these really awful people and how they led Israel and in many cases led Israel astray and, and make us marvel at the way God uses these crooked, crooked instruments to write straight the beautiful words of his redemptive story. So last week, we considered the first half of Gideon's life. This week, we're going to consider the last half. And we're going to look at Gideon through the same lens this week as we did last week, namely his relationship with the word of the Lord. And last week, we saw the Lord speaking to Gideon, and he said, God says, 
I will deliver my people from the oppression of the Midianites by your hand. And Gideon's relationship with this word of the Lord was fear and reluctance, if you'll recall, and manipulation to God. But by and large, Gideon obeyed and he fought with courage and he delivered God's people from the hand of the Midianites. And I wish that the story ended there. Oh, I wish that the story ended there. Because if it ended there, we could praise Gideon for his faithfulness, even though it had to be wrenched out of him like a tooth from a jaw. But that is not where the story ends. In fact, there's something very peculiar about the word of the Lord in the Gideon story. I don't know if you've read the whole book, but there's no other judge in which God says, there's more words of the Lord pouring out of God's mouth than in Gideon's story. If you you read the whole thing, it's very surprising because with Gideon, God is positively chatty. If you took a red pen and and you circled all the words that came out of God's mouth to his judges, you'd have one or two in, you know, um, Ehud and and in uh, Samson and, um, you know, the ones that surrounded. Then you get to Gideon and it's like you run out of ink. It's everywhere. God speaks and he speaks more and he gives more words to Gideon. And what's interesting is that we have Gideon's story in chapters 6 through 8 of Judges. And in chapter 6, red lines everywhere. Chapter 7, red lines all over the place. But then you get to chapter 8, and God is silent. There's nothing. So after Gideon wins the battle with the Midi- against the Midianites, which is what all the red lines were instructing him to do, we have no more words of the Lord to Gideon. And this is not, this is not an accident. The, the writer of the book of Judges is trying to help us understand in no uncertain terms that all that occurs in chapter 8 is Gideon's behavior beyond the word of the Lord. He, he has gone beyond it. So last week we saw how Gideon responded within the bounds of the word of the Lord. He's fearful, he's reluctant, but he's obedient. And now we're going to see Gideon as he responds and steps beyond the word of the Lord, namely a prideful disobedience. And he does this in mainly three ways. Number one, a prideful disobedience through personal vengeance. Number two, an accepting, rejecting of kingship. I'll explain what that means. And number three, leading Israel finally into idolatry. So let's begin with the first one, personal vengeance. He goes beyond the word of the Lord. The first thing Gideon does when he steps outside the revealed word of the Lord is to take vengeance on his enemies. Now remember what God's word was to Gideon with regards to Israel's enemies. Uh, Back in chapter 7, verse 9. Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. God could not have been clearer. Go destroy the camp of the Midianites. Gideon, of course, does this, and because the Spirit rushes upon him. But you'll recall that in our text that we just read, that Gideon goes beyond this, just destroying the camp, to exact personal revenge. No longer is Gideon that fearful, trembling, reluctant deliverer that we saw in the beginning of his life. Now he is angry and vengeful, and he feels powerful. And so he takes the 300 men, the, ironically, the very symbol of God's 
um, power to deliver his people, and he chases down the enemy kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. Now, this is an exhausting chase. They go very far, and the 300 men have no food to revive them, and so they're passing through familiar territory, the territories of Penuel, the territories of Succoth, and I know that you don't know who those people are, but just so you know, they're Israelites. They're brothers, okay? They, they, these are people who ought to be showing hospitality to um, these 300 men. So Gideon asked them, my men are um, exhausted. We've been pursuing these enemy kings, the ones who've oppressed us. Give them some bread. And what's their response? The men of Succoth and Pen, will both deny him, saying, well, you haven't, you haven't captured those kings yet. Uh, we're not going to put ourselves in a bad position with them in the case that you fail. So, no bread. And Gideon is furious. To the Succothites, if you remember, he promises that he will come back and flail their flesh with the thorns of the field. And then to the guys in Penuel, he says, all right, when I capture them, I'm going to come back. I'm going to break down your tower. Okay. So sure enough, Gideon captures Zeba and Zalmunna, the enemy kings, and surprisingly, he doesn't kill them. Why doesn't he kill them? Because he binds them and brings them back to Succoth and Penuel, and he says, hey guys, remember when you wouldn't give me and my men bread because the Midianite kings were not in, in my hands yet? Well, here they are. And it says that Gideon kept his promises. He destroyed the tower of Penuel, but he went further. Not only did he destroy the tower of Penuel, he killed all their men. Okay, um, then he goes to Succoth and he thrashes those men's bodies until they are bloody with the thorns of the field. And then he goes ahead and executes Zeba and Zalmunna. And, and I'm like, this doesn't even feel like the Bible. This feels like the Godfather. Something is, this is insane. Gideon. What is going on? No words from the Lord here. And it shouldn't surprise us. If we look at this and we go, Gideon, like, how can this be? What are you doing? I mean, it shouldn't surprise us because we saw something last week that indicated this direction. Do you remember when Gideon instructed his men before attacking the Midianite camp that when they went up, they were supposed to shout something? And what were they supposed to shout? For the Lord and for Gideon. Oh, what? <laughs> and for the Lord and for Gideon. So you see, in the beginning of Gideon's life, he falls on his face and worships when the angel of the Lord appears, and the Lord takes up all the space in that scenario. In the middle of, his, of the story, Gideon decides he wants to share the space with the Lord Almighty, for the Lord and for Gideon. But at the end, Gideon decides he wants to take up all the space. And it is, uh, it is surprising to me. I, I should say shocking, astonishing. How in so many scenarios in the Bible, God is so easily refused. He, he allows himself to be pushed out of the way. Not always. And in the end, surely not. But it is astonishing to me. So Gideon decides he wants to take up all the space. He's angry. He is vengeful. And those powerful emotions inside him take over so completely that he decides to kill his Israelite brothers in Succoth and in Penuel. And what's amazing to me is that like this, this guy who was so fearful and reluctant to do anything, now he is powerful 
and he, he's going to come back and flail the flesh and break down the tower, where's the fleece there? Right? I mean, God tells him, go do this. He's like, ah, but the, but the fleece, can you make sure that this is your will? And then he does it. He's like, ah, but one more. Can you make sure, tell me for sure that this is your will? Gideon is just operating on his own will right now. He doesn't care what the will of the Lord is. His heart is aflame with the desire for revenge. And, and it seems to me that he didn't ask for a sign from the Lord because he didn't want to know what the will of the Lord was. I mean, haven't any of us ever risen from our prayers very quickly for the fear that if we stayed any longer, God's will might become clear to us? (laughs) Nervous laughter. Yes, 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 of course we have. My goodness. So Gideon has gone beyond the word of the Lord and his personal vengeance. I had no idea that we would have a real story of that, which we'll come back to here in a minute. Okay, so there's Gideon's personal vengeance. Let's go to the second one. Secondly, Gideon goes beyond the word of the Lord by rejecting, accepting the kingship in Israel. So Gideon executes the Midianite kings, and the people of Israel are dazzled by his accomplishment. And you remember what they said to him? They said, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson. So, I mean, they're you know, hereditary line already forming. I mean, it's unbelievable. You rule over us, you and your grandson, you and your son and your grandson, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. That's verse 22 of chapter 8. Now, we know at this point in Israelite history that they have no king who unites all the tribes, that God himself said, I will be your king. Okay? So... Um, Gideon seems to know this. He seems to have pretty good theology, and so he, um, he says these majestic words to them. They say, be our king, rule over us, you and your son, and, every, and he says, verse 23, chapter 8, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. <sighs> Gideon, well done. Yes, what an enticing offer to be king over the people of Israel, to accumulate power and to have many wives and descendants. Any man would be sorely tempted by this offer, but Gideon rejects the kingship, right? No, Um, here's where I tell you that Gideon rejects the kingship only in name. He says, uh, I mean, Gideon says the right words. That's true. But then look at the very next thing that he does. The words, the Lord will be your king, are just barely have left his lips. And he makes a request of the people. But let me have all the golden earrings from the spoil that you have won. And they do it. And, and it says it's 1,700 shekels, which I know is lost on us. It's something like, um, you know, I'm trying to do the conversion in my head. It's about something like a million dollars in our economy. Um, It's no small amount. And uh, it's a huge amount of gold, enough that we'll see he builds a huge statue out of it later, but we'll get to that in a minute. And then it says that he also kept the purple robes of royalty that he took from the Midianite kings and the symbols of power from around their camels' necks. Not only that, it says that Gideon did, what, what did he do with all that? He created an ephod, which we'll talk about in a moment. 
<laughs> Lots of things we're going to talk about in a moment. Just hold on. And then the point is he made this ephod and he set it up at Ophrah. Now, what's the significance of Ophrah? Well, it's Gideon's hometown. We see that in chapter 6. He sets up an instrument of national power in his hometown, which tells us that aside from gathering huge amounts of wealth and keeping the purple robes of the kings and the symbols of kingly authority from around the other king's camels necks, he is also consolidating political power for himself. And then at the end of the story, it said that he had many wives and many sons and a concubine. And that means that he may have rejected the title of king but he sure is acting exactly like a king. Now, in our context, what Gideon is doing is largely lost on us. We don't have kings. We don't know what they acted like, so maybe it would help to see this in our own context. I recently heard that Dwayne The Rock Johnson is going to run for president in some future election. <laughs> and, w- and wouldn't America be pleased to have Dwayne The Rock Johnson run <laughs> for president? But what if the candidacy season started and Dwayne The Rock Johnson said, I'm sorry, I know you all want me to be president, but I'm not going to run for president. But I would like to move into the White House and I would like to work in the Oval Office. I would like to be the chief, commander-in-chief of the armed forces and I would like to have veto power over any congressional bills that came through. And we'd be like, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, that's being the president. Just because you don't say it, that doesn't mean you're not it. Okay, I don't know if that's going to happen. We'll see. Um, But this is exactly what Gideon's doing. (laughs) Oh, he rejects... (laughs) Dwayne. He rejects the name of king, but accepts all the trappings of the king. Let me say that one more time. He rejects the name of king, but accepts all the trappings of the king. So Gideon has gone beyond the word of the Lord. And then thirdly, he does it a third way, namely in the establishment of idol worship in Israel. So I want to bring you back to the beginning of Gideon's ministry. And this is a little episode that we skipped over in the first week. And I want to bring it back to your attention now. It's in Judges chapter 6, verses 25 through 27. Judges 6, 25 through 27. And it says this. That night the Lord said to him, Gideon, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So the first event in Gideon's ministry is to destroy the idolatrous altar to Baal that is in his family's home and cut down the idolatrous Asherah pole which is next to it and erect a altar to the Lord there. And so in this action, Gideon announces to the people of Israel, no longer will you worship idols in this land. It's idols that got you in the mess to begin, in this mess to begin with, namely the oppression from the Midianites. That's the problem. 
And to me, I mean, it's like this is an explosive way to begin a ministry. But after, in chapter 8, after Gideon has abandoned and gone beyond the word of the Lord and begins to live only with reference to himself, we find that his story ends in tragedy. Now, remember what Gideon did with all of that gold that he acquired from the people of Israel. You see it in chapter 8, verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Okay, now what's going on here? Well, an ephod, if you've ever read the books of Moses, is a garment worn exclusively by the priests of Israel. And they do this when they're in the temple um, performing their worship duties. And um, if you've read uh, the commentaries on Judges about this particular issue in Gideon's story, you get a lot of different speculations. But everyone agrees that whatever this ephod was, because how do you make it out of gold? And it's like, uh, because the ephods and, and the books of Moses are made out of linen. And it's like all these you know, scholars who go, go deep into the minutia of Hebrew. I mean, anyway, but the point is, nobody really knows. But we do know for sure that it either clothed an idol or itself was an idol. So how do you know that? Because the language, look at the language used to describe Israel's response to it. All Israel hoard after it. That is, in the Bible, that is the universal language for idolatry, especially when it comes to the prophets. And Israel hoard after it, and Gideon did it. The man who began his career by smashing Israel's idolatrous altar ends his life by setting up a new idol for Israel to whore after. And here's the tragedy. The legacy of Gideon's life is exactly nothing. Israel is in the exact same position as they were before Gideon died, was, um, came into his ministry, and after he died. They have moved nowhere. I, I don't know if that astonishes you as much as it astonishes me. But everything good that Gideon did, at the end of his life, he undid it. It was as if Gideon had never lived. So we see the tragedy of a man who goes beyond the word of the Lord. He ruins himself in the pursuit of personal revenge. He rejects the titles of the king, the title of king, but accepts all the trappings of a king. And then Gideon finally leads the people he delivered from idolatry right back into idolatry. So what are we to do with all of this? What use can we make of it? Well, let's go back to God's people scattered on the banks of the Euphrates River in their Babylonian exile because as we said before, the final form of the book of Judges was written and assembled during the period of the exile, many, many years after the events of the Judges actually took place. 
And imagine the tears in the people's eyes as they recount how their deliverer, Gideon, went so far beyond the word of the Lord and how he led them into the very sins for which their exile was the punishment. If I've done my job right, you're feeling some of the sadness, even just a little bit of the sadness of of considering this man's life and all that it did not amount to. But notice what rises out of this sadness for for God's people in exile. As they were in exile, they wrote some songs. And these were songs of lament. And one of those is Psalm 80. Psalm 80 in verse 4 says this. O Lord, God of hosts. Now see them on the banks of the river singing this. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. But then out of this deep and powerful anguish, we see a hope rising like a sun on the horizon. In verse 17, it says, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. So the heavy sobs of their bodies gave way to this deep longing. Oh, that you would send the son of man, the the man of your right hand, to save us. And it was this prayer, as you know, that God would answer in the arrival of his son. And it was his son that would fulfill the longing of, of all of his people. You see, Jesus, what's amazing, Jesus never went beyond the word of the Lord. Do you remember when he said, I do only what I see my father doing? Do you remember another occasion when he said, my, my food is to do the will of my Father. He never went beyond the word of the Lord. And Jesus refused to exact any measure of personal vengeance. When the authorities arrested and arraigned him, Jesus didn't rise up in power and flail their flesh with the thorns of the field. Rather, he fell silent while the men went out and got the thorns of the field, twisted it into a crown, and pressed it into his flesh, not only so that they could cause him pain, but so that they could mock him for his claims to be king. And while we're on that, Gideon rejected the name of king, but accepted all the trappings of a king. Jesus, on the other hand, accepted the name of king, but rejected all of its trappings. He refused to consolidate political power, but instead he entered the world in the form of a slave. Do you remember what it says in Philippians 2? Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now remember that Gideon's legacy was to leave the people of God bereft and separated from the presence of God. 
but through the broken body of Jesus Christ, he has reconciled God's people to himself. And by this act, established them as the dwelling place for God's own presence, namely his spirit. So, so do you see him? Like, don't you know that Christ is your only resting place? Have you gone beyond the word of the Lord by seeking personal revenge, either in the form of like bitterness or resentment or refusing to offer forgiveness or for crying out loud? I mean, we're not in a tribal society, but like, I mean, it is amazing to see that in a culture that prizes revenge, as Jay Norma just told us, here is a man who heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his main application was no more revenge. And he goes back to his village and he says, you have to hear the good news. You must. Is that amazing? But we don't, I mean, we're not out in personal vendettas. We're not, we don't have a culture of blood feud and that sort of thing. But we do, we do make agreements with bitterness and resentment. We refuse to offer forgiveness. And don't you know that such a life will break your heart? It will send you into exile of soul? See the man at God's right hand and know that he will take up your sorrows and one day he will judge every person's heart. You don't have to carry the awful burden of justice anymore because one day the risen Christ will open his mouth and justice will break forth as the dawn. You can lay it down. It's good news. So have you gone beyond the word of the Lord by claiming to be one thing while acting another? Have you sought refuge in hypocrisy? Don't you know that such a life will break your heart and send you into exile of soul? See the man of God's right hand and know that he has freed you from your prison and in the power of the spirit, you may walk out and be free. Or maybe you've gone beyond the word of the Lord by giving your heart to other gods. Do you pass through your life with a lie in your right hand? Such a life will break your heart and send you into exile of soul. But see the man of God's right hand who gave his life so that you may dwell in the presence of God where you will find fullness of joy. Let's pray. Our Father, We live in a time and a place where we don't know quite how to handle tragic figures. But we have seen very clearly that the way we handle them is to look to Jesus. To some degree, because we all have participated in the fall, all of our lives have a measure of tragedy. But Father, how we long for that day when those tragedies will be turned into comedies. And it will only happen if the Lord returns. So we say, as we long for every week, come Lord Jesus, we await you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, all God's people said, amen. Okay, we come to the table now. And this is a table of receiving. You know this because you come every week and you receive grace. This is the place where Christ hosts you and reminds you you are forgiven. 
you are accepted. Your guilt, your sin, nothing stands against you any longer because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So it is a table of receiving, but it is also a table of giving. When you come, you come with something in your hands as well. You come with burdens of um, revenge, bitterness, whatever. You, you come with other gods in your right hand. You come with sins, with hypocrisy. You come. And, and Christ says, at this table, give those to me. Give those to me. Now the only, these are not prices of admission to this table. The only price of admission to this table has been paid, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, if you will come to this table, you must be dressed properly. And the dress for this table is repentance. So, get dressed and get ready. Because your Savior is ready to tell you that you are forgiven, that you belong to him. And to remind you of all that you mean to him. Now, this is a meal for Christians, for those who have been dressed in the garments of repentance, who have been dressed in the garments of the Spirit. If that's not you, first of all, it can be you. Will you believe? Will you believe that he has pardoned you because of his shed blood on the cross? Will you get dressed in repentance along with the rest of us? If so, please come. If not, and you want to, but you simply can't, then sit in your seat and ask God for it. You won't get it by trying. You only receive it as a gift. So let this be a moment where we all repent together and come and receive the fullness of his grace. So come.